About 30 years ago, I encountered an event that I will never forget the rest of my life, and the image has burned itself into my mind. I have a hard time thinking about it to this day without getting choked up, so I'll apologize in advance if I do. Because if I let myself enter into the story and even start to tell it, I start to relive it. I was with my family. We were going down to the Benson and Hedges Symphony of Fire in downtown Vancouver. It's an event that happens there in the summer, and upwards of 400,000 people find their way out to the beach in these barges out in the water um, as different countries compete each night in a kind of global fireworks extravaganza. And so hundreds of thousands of people are downtown, and there's just sort of this excitement in the crowd and the mass. You had to park a long ways away, and one night when we were going back afterwards to our vehicle, through the whole crowd, we passed this space where there was a fight starting. And some people who believed in the elevation of their race over other people were picking on a man from India in that moment. And they were calling him names and mocking the color of his skin and the way that he spoke. And as they ganged up on him and got him to the ground, two people held him down as one other jumped up to jump on his skull in a term that's actually become common enough that there's even a name for it, and curb stomped him. And I remember everybody in the crowd running away. Fearful, of course, for their own life. Like, what would happen if I got involved in that moment? It seemed like the prudent thing to do. But something was so nagging inside of me. In what to this day is probably one of the most glaring sins of omission I have ever committed, even already then as a child, I'm not jumping in. I'm not standing in the way. And I wonder when it comes to sins of racism and prejudice within our hearts and within our countries, if it's perhaps the most glaring in our sins of omission, the things we haven't done that has allowed us to remain at the place where we are today, where there's still so much tension between what was supposed to be an expression of the creative diversity of a genius God. Only sin could take the tapestry, the mosaic, the beautiful diversity that God created and find ways to rank and classify the value of a human being based on the way that they talk, the country they come from, the color of the skin, their skin, the type of music they listen to, what state they come from, what zip code they have, whether they have blonde hair or brown hair whether they speak with an accent, whether they're short or tall, whether they're beautiful, whether they're not, according to some culturally defined standard. I have lived with the knowledge all of my life that 30 years ago, I was the priest and the Levite in the parable of the Good Samaritan. I sing about a good God who I want to be like, but in that moment, I was anything but good 
And how many more times have I heard someone tell a joke that mocks somebody else? Made fun of them for not being as bright or the state that they were from. Some quirky difference about them. Redneck, white trash, you know all the lists. And for all the different races, I have three adopted black children, and in this very community, at a Christian school, and in youth sports, and on playgrounds, have been called nigger. I can't even imagine what it's like to have to go through life at a certain disadvantage based on cultural standards because of how tall or short you are the color of your skin, the presuppositions people make about you. And when those things alone begin to determine the likelihood of our ability to go to college, to not feel suspicion when under the look and survey of someone in law enforcement, or the fear for someone in law enforcement, where each time we reduce people to taglines, and categories, and when we see somebody as anything other than the beautiful image bearer of God that they are. We all love to grade ourselves on the curve on this, but right now what I think in our culture and in this moment is that we don't need louder and better arguments. I think this is a season of lament and of repentance and of weeping and of prayer for all the things, not that necessarily we have blatantly and explicitly done, but for all the things we have left undone. Because you don't end up being a country for a few hundred years and not have fixed your problems without leaving a lot of things undone. And I love it when I hear your generation talk because you give me hope. And I think that you're going to do this better than we did. And it is my deep desire that there are less priests and Levites in this room in the parable of the Good Samaritan than there are Samaritans who are willing to be good. Because that story doesn't start off with, hey Jesus, what do nice people do? So what must I do to inherit eternal life? I would consider the stakes of that pretty high. We have to get this right. And our world needs a church right now that will stand in the gap and enter into those spaces and get ministry mess on them and stand in the fray and not avoid hard and difficult conversations in places because we're interesting, interested in protecting ourselves like I was. And like too often, I still am. And we see conflicts around us. This already from a G20 summit picture in Toronto. An awareness growing within humanity that there's a disparity that continues to grow between the haves and the have-nots, those who have privilege and those who don't. Even within our own country, we're experiencing this. Now, 5% of Americans now hold two-thirds of all of this country's wealth. 5%. 
I'm in the top 10th of the top 1% of all income earners on the face of this planet. If that's not privilege, I don't know what is. I am the guy who didn't get 10 talents in the parable of talents. I got 20. And each one of us has to understand, what am I going to do with the voice and the opportunities that I've been given? Not only in what I do, but in the things that I leave undone. What is God asking you in this moment to do? In the smallest of conversations or the corrections with friends. Because the line between good and evil doesn't run between those two and you don't just pick a side. The line between good and evil runs with the guy in the mask right down the middle of him and the cop on the other side right down the middle of him. And both of them are the old person and potentially a new creation in Christ all at the same time, just like me. We are so much more complex than our cultural narratives want to make it sound like. This isn't about picking a side. If we do that, we're already done. Because it allows us to create a difference between an us and a them. And that is not permissible for the follower of Jesus. It's not. If someone arrives at a space in life that they have to say black lives matter, like if that even needs to be said, that alone is a statement about the fact that we are as broken as we are. And you can dismiss that with whatever you want to. But we're in the same communities and countries together. We're in this. If my wife says to me, you make me feel horrible all the time, Aaron, I can't just say, well, that's your opinion. I live in a marriage with her. I have to take that sentiment seriously. If there's any faction among us that feels like a voice has not been heard, it's a voice worth listening to. And that sentiment is real, and our hearts should break for that. And I'm not suggesting I know what the solution is, and I'm not trying to put blame on one side or another. I'm telling us very, very clearly, every single one of us is a sinful and a renewed conflict walking around with skin on every day of our lives. I hold within me the potential to wake up tomorrow morning and walk by somebody and leave something undone yet again at 44 years old. And you would think in 30 years I would have learned that lesson. But it's still going. There's still a pandemic. And maybe this is a smokescreen right now of the coronavirus pandemic, but there's another one. And how soon we forget George Floyd, Breonna Taylor. And our anxieties amongst everybody all the world over right now are so elevated. Like a Tibetan Buddhist monk who feels like they've got no last option left than to self-immolate and light themselves on fire. People at their wit's end doing the same thing around us in our world. This should break our heart. Our first instinct as followers of Jesus is not to figure out who we're supposed to blame, but how are we supposed to heal? And where does transformation come from? Football coach Joe Penner gave me this great analogy from Dr. Tony Evans about how um, oil and water kind of just don't go together. Like you can't make them mix. And it seems at times like some of our differences over different arguments are that. But if you just introduce a third element to it, and he gave the example of eggs, if you put eggs with oil and water, suddenly you have mayonnaise. Well, now you have something useful. 
So what's that third bonding agent? Jesus is the third way in each and every difficulty that we have in life. So what he decided to do when he said that you will have power when the Holy Spirit comes on you is that he's going to ask the church, the followers of God, those who say that he is his, our Lord and our Savior, that he's going to empower us with gifts from on high to be the answer to the world's problems because he reigns in us. Not people who point fingers and not people who join sides, but people who have the capacity to wake up every morning of their life and every person that they look into the eyes of see someone that Jesus died for and that he is madly in love with. That matters deeply. Our emotions are hitting new highs. It's peaking right now. You can feel it. We're redlining as a culture, aren't we? And we've weaponized words, and now those words have actually devolved into actual weapons. But words alone still create worlds. That's how our story starts. And God said, galaxies. With words, you can build people up. With words, you can tear them down. Words construct realities. Words create story and imagination. They create laws and religions and ideologies. With words we go to war. And with words we end them. You have so much power in the words that you yield. And how will you yield them? I wanted to talk this semester about this passage from Colossians 3 about how Christianity will have power because that was Jesus' last promise. In Acts 1.8, you will have power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. So what does that look like? If it's not lining up in mass and protests and if it's not just simply adopting whatever cultural kind of symbol is being employed in the moment that represents our side, if we are being offered a power greater than any cultural visual symbol right now, what is that? What does Jesus want to give you and me? I'm going to recap where we've been the last two weeks in these verses. Listen to Paul talk about the realities that already exist. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above. Anchor into that, not on earthly things. Get more riled up about the stuff of Jesus than the stuff going on right now in the dialogues of the world around you. For you died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So what you got to do? you got to put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. And you used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived. But now you also must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, in the image of its creator. 
And now here's the verse we get to today. So right before, and we're going to go into this next week, and before the specific pieces of the clothing of Christ that we put on in the world that empower us, there's one more thing Paul says we need to deal with and put to death. Because this is the new reality. And if you and me are going to be the new humanity on the world, display, to show people what heaven can be, as it breaks into the present through the platform of our lives. Here, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. So right before we're going to put on the clothing of Christ and specifically name these elements, Paul says we need to understand that all the divisions that the world has tried to create around all of these things cannot be a part of our identity. Only sin would take the beautiful gifts of God's creative imagination and use them to commodify image bearers of God. Only sin could do that. And so the great common denominator, the level playing field that you and I get to enjoy as children of God is that before him we all stand level. It doesn't matter how much money I got in my IRA. It doesn't matter the color of my skin. It doesn't matter the country I came from. I am of the exact same value. I was bought with a price. I was adopted as a son and a daughter of God. And I am of equal standing to anybody else. Nowhere else in the world can I experience that kind of freedom than when we get to come together as the people of God in his presence. And if we're doing it right, we'll be an accurate reflection of that for a world that only knows division and ranking and anxieties and insecurities and hatred and war and division different neighborhoods and competitions and rivals dislike and discord so here there is no that's the great common denominator here I don't care if you ever thought one day of your life somebody else was prettier than you more important than you better at a sport than you here when we come here you are the prized possession of Jesus Christ whom he died to buy back. Your life is of infinite value and so is everybody else's. Because of that, here there is no. And then he goes to the list of the very things in their world they use to define differences between people, Gentile or Jew. This is the ultimate first century us versus them argument of cultural superiority. We still do this today. We pick favorites. I have actually heard Christians make the argument for American exceptionalism. Consider the world's words a minute. I love this country. I love America. America's great. But it's not. Exceptional implies that somebody else isn't. That someone else could come from a crap hole nation. Can you imagine Jesus referring to that? How many different flags do you think are going to fly over the wedding supper of the Lamb? So we're either interested in setting our hearts and our minds on the things above and reeling them into the present and becoming a reflection of that for the world or we'll use points of division. Canadian exceptionalism? That's not just a myth. That is a slap in the face of a God who created diversity. I am no better than anybody else. I couldn't save myself, neither could you. We all needed a Savior. And right now, 
I am infinitely more concerned about the calloused borders around our hearts than I am the poorest borders of our nations. I think there's a greater risk to who we are into the future based on what's happening right now inside of here and not over there. Circumcised or uncircumcised, their favorite way to define people's validity based on their religious identity. There cannot be a better than religiosity. I think we are way more interested in the differences between our denominations represented in this room than Jesus is ever going to be. I don't think there's a theological skill test at the gate of heaven where Jesus is going to ask you about infra versus superlapsarianism. The history of the branches within the Methodist church, who all the key reformers were, the branches of churches that they started are why we continue to argue about all sorts of things today. Any hint of division within that mindset that allows us to think of somebody else as less than us must be destroyed. We have to put that to death, and if not, then we're no better than the Islamic extremists. Barbarian, Scythian. Barbarian is a Greek word. Uh, it's an automatopoeia word in Greek. Um, so they came up with the word barbarian because they made fun of the way other people spoke. Um, and they said they'd go bar, bar, bar because they couldn't understand their languages, so they mocked them, and that's the word that ended up sticking. That's why they call somebody a barbarian because they didn't understand what they were saying and they thought that however they spoke was stupid or dumb or less than they were. And Scythian is a representation of the people, the farthest points of Asia that were known at that point in time. So that's where you kind of get those listed off here. Even the people you don't know, Jesus says, I made them too in my image. And they're of infinite value to me. And please do not ever disparage them or discredit them. If they pick a different form of government, if they vote differently than you do, if they eat different foods than you do, if you think those foods stink, I don't care. What if that's part of God's creative diversity and our making fun of that is slapping him in the face? That has to be fixed. Slaver free. The ultimate sin in humanity where we find a way to make someone's life worth so much less than our own that we believe that they should have to do what we don't have to do. When you can treat a human being as an object. And thank the Lord we've moved past that, at least in our own history, but we still have so far to go because Christ is all. So all that other stuff, nothing. This, this is what matters. This is what you've got to fix your eyes on. This is the eyes on the prize. Focus our gaze and don't ever let anyone tell you otherwise. Christ is all. And he's in all. Therefore, the first and most important thing that you must see in every neighbor's face, in an Iranian face, in a cop's face, in a protester's face, in a Democrat's face, in a Republican's face, in a homeless face, in a billionaire's face, in our own face, in the face of a stranger, in the face of a lover, in the face of our own enemies, is a God speaking over their life and says, I'm so fond of this one. Will you all do me a favor today? 
There's a homework assignment out of chapel. We rarely ever do this. Can you just find somebody today that you could just say, I think Jesus is especially fond of you. Remind people again of their infinite value. You know, when Jesus was confronted about paying taxes to Caesar and they wanted to pull him into the great cultural debate that was taking place, remember Jesus' response? Just give me a coin. You want? He's like, who put their face on this? I'm like, Caesar? He's like, well then, give to Caesar what is Caesar. If he wants to put his face on it, give it back to him. But give to God what is God's. You know who God put his face on? Every human being. That's your offering back to him. The celebration and the affirmation of the validity of every human life that bears the image of God. That is a beautiful act of worship brought back. And my guess is if you were at all like me, that we stand in a moment where the Holy Spirit's going to need to do a little searching in our hearts and remind us that we have looked at somebody else as a them, as someone who is an apprised, cherished, child, creation of God himself. So I think that parable still tells. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. The world needs a vote, give them a vote. If they need your taxes, give them their taxes. The world will have its cultural liturgies and they'll play national anthems and we'll have flags and okay. But just understand, the greater, more important thing, give to God what is God's. The treasures in the kingdom of heaven are sitting right here and they live next door to you and all over the world, and he died to redeem them. My hope is I'll never be a priest or a Levite in that parable of the Good Samaritan ever again. I passed by a moment that I could speak into and make a difference for one image bearer. You guys come on back up and lead us in song, and I'll, uh, I'll pray with you as they do. Will you please stand up with Pray together. Father, we acknowledge and we confess and we repent that it is so often out of our sinful nature where we value ourselves and our opinions and our ideas more than others. We have marginalized people who don't have the same things as us or the same privileges. Father, for all the things that we have done or said or left unsaid and undone that would have been part of the advancement of your kingdom in terms of finding a common denominator before the cross, we repent. And we ask you to invite us again into your abundant life. We thank you for that freedom that is ours. And may we, may we as your people already here on this campus practice doing this each and every day in the way that we celebrate everybody made in your image. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.